Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Okay, so let's just recap where we've been the past two weeks. So the first night, we, said, we started back in Genesis 1 with God being the creator and the sustainer of all things and that we're accountable to him as our creator. He defines reality. Last week, we looked at the Bible, that the Bible's true without any errors and that what progressive Christianity tries to do is to try to downplay the authority of the Bible. And so today we're talking about Jesus, okay? Jesus being the only way of salvation. And so here's the attack that comes from our culture. It comes from progressive Christianity. Jesus is a good and helpful model for how to live But we cannot be so narrow-minded to say that salvation comes exclusively through Jesus. Okay? Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this. The past few weeks, we've been talking about progressive Christianity. What do progressives? In the past, back in the 20s and 30s, it was called liberal Christianity. In the late 90s, early 2000s, it was called emergent Christianity. Now they're calling themselves progressive Christianity. Christianity. If you go to the website, progressivechristianity.org, they give their eight commandments, so their eight points of progressive Christianity. Let me read to you just two of those. Does everybody have a handout that has these sheets so that you can write notes? Okay, if not, they're over there on the thing. Okay, so progressive Christianity. This is one of their points. Believe that following the path of the teacher Jesus can lead to healing and wholeness, a mystical connection to God as well as an awareness and experience of not only the sacred, but the oneness and unity of all of life. Wow, that sounds interesting. All right, number two. Affirm the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience God, the sacredness, oneness, and unity of life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom, including earth, in our spiritual journey. So, here's the point. The progressive Christian view of Jesus is that he's more of a moral teacher. He's a guru. He's a wise sage that has really good teachings. He has really good ethical teachings. And, and the primarily, you can narrow everything down to the golden rule. Be nice to others. Treat each other kindly. They do not see Jesus as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, Christ come in the flesh. They downplay him being the only way of salvation. They don't see him as someone that you would surrender your life to, but more of an example to follow. But here's the irony. If Jesus is a good example to follow, they pick and choose which parts of Jesus' teaching they want to follow. Remember last week when I talked about red-letter Christians? Okay, so if you want to follow Jesus' teachings, what does Jesus have to say about marriage and sexuality? Jesus, okay? Mark 7, 21 through 23. From within, 
out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The word there that Jesus uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia. We get our word porn or pornography from that. And so some people would say, well, Jesus doesn't really care about sex and marriage and all those types of things. He didn't talk about that. But yet he uses the term there, sexual immorality, which in the Bible means any type of sexual conduct outside of one biological male and one biological woman in the covenant of marriage. He also talks about the institution of marriage. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, he answered, that's Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. A couple of things here. Notice what Jesus does. He goes back to Genesis and quotes the scriptures as authoritative And Jesus upholds the biblical definition of marriage. Okay, So Jesus upholds God's original institution of marriage between one man and one woman. Okay, So this is Jesus' teaching from the Bible, what he's teaching about human sexuality. Okay, What did Jesus teach about hell? So we're going to talk about this next week. What did Jesus talk about hell? Because progressive Christians downplay hell. Hell's more hell on earth. It's not an eternal place of suffering. It's more just the bad things that we create here through social injustice. What did Jesus teach about hell? Okay, Matthew 25, 41 through 46, separating the sheep from the goats. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Interesting there. What do progressive Christians, and we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, what do they value? Social justice, doing good. And what does Jesus say here? You did all these good things, but you did not trust me for salvation, and therefore there's eternal punishment. Who talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible? Jesus. Actually more so than Paul. Okay? What did Jesus teach about sin? Well, John 8, 31 through 34. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We like Jesus' teachings. We like him as a moral teacher. We want to follow his ethic. Okay, are you going to follow him when he talks about marriage? 
You going to follow him when he talks about the reality of hell? Are you going to follow his teaching when he talks about sin? You can't pick and choose what part of Jesus you're going to follow. So here's the main point. When you make Jesus only a good model to follow and not Savior and Lord to be worshipped, what you end up doing is you reduce Christianity down to what I call moralism. Christianity becomes not about worshiping and living for Jesus as Savior and Lord, but more doing good. Deeds over creeds. It's not what you believe, it's what you do. Christianity is about being a good person. It's about doing the right thing. It's about following Jesus' model. It's not about submitting your life to him because he's Christ, because he's God in the flesh, because he's worthy to be worshipped. You follow these certain rules, you're good. So Jesus becomes a model for us. In other words, let me put it this way. Okay, this may be a kind of an unfair way to put it. But this is the way they would probably say it. Jesus is a social activist, not a savior. He went around doing good, and he freed the oppressed, and he taught great things, and we should follow those teachings, but let's not go overboard and begin to worship him as, as God and Savior. So here's the greatest goal of the Christian life for progressive Christianity. The greatest goal of the Christian life then becomes to emulate Jesus as a social activist by doing good deeds to make this world a better place. There is no emphasis placed upon trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior and worshiping him as God in the flesh. Okay. We're going to be in the Gospel of John a lot tonight, but we're going to go to the end of John before we go back to the beginning. So I want you to go to John 20. And this is after Christ has risen from the grave. And that first appearance, he appears to the 12, minus actually 11, because Judas had already gone and hanged himself. But one disciple was gone, right? Remember Thomas? And we're not sure why Thomas was gone. He just was gone. And then the other disciple says, we've seen the Lord. He showed up in the flesh to us. And we call him Doubting Thomas because, remember, he didn't believe. So let's pick up in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. A really strong statement there from Thomas. I'm never going to believe this unless I see it and touch it and feel it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet 
have believed. Thomas makes two huge statements about Jesus. What does he say? My Lord and my God. Does Jesus correct him? Thomas, don't, don't call me God. Don't call me Lord. You're going overboard. I'm just a good teacher. Just follow my example. Okay, first of all, what does it mean for Jesus to be your Lord? My Lord. And notice how Thomas makes it first person. My Lord. My God. It means this. That Jesus is absolutely sovereign over your life as king. And he has every right to tell you how to live and what to believe. My Lord. I'm not the Lord. I'm not the king. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. He has the right to dictate what I believe, how I live. He's absolute sovereign. So there are a lot of scriptures that talk about Jesus being Lord. So Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 14, 9. For this is the end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And then Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Thomas says to the risen Christ, My Lord. Not just, I'm, you're a good example to follow, Jesus. I like your teaching. You're a great social activist. Let me emulate your ethics. It's no, you're my Lord. You're the king. You're sovereign. And then the second thing he says is, my God, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus God. Now, let's not be confused here. That does not mean that Jesus is the same person as the Father. They're two distinct persons. But it does mean that Jesus is absolutely God in the flesh. He is full deity. He's, he's fully divine. Okay, Jesus is absolute deity. Jesus doesn't stop Thomas and say, now wait a minute, don't make me equal with God. God the Father is God, but I'm not. I'm just kind of lower than God. He says, Jesus doesn't stop him because Jesus is Lord and he's God. Colossians 2.9, for in him, talking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word there is, is Jesus, the Logos, the Word. John 5, 18, this was why Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Okay. Is Thomas a good Jewish man? Yes. He grew up in the rabbi schools. He grew up reciting what we call is the Shema. Okay. The Shema, Shema just means here. It's the Hebrew word for here. 
in the synagogue every Sunday, they would recite the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, Shema, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Lord our God. What words do you have in the Shema? Lord and God. Okay, well, the Old Testament, that's talking about Yahweh. Only Yahweh, the Father, was God and Lord. As a good Jew, you you would only say that about Yahweh. What does Thomas say to Jesus right in front of him? My Lord and my God, which would have been very radical for the Jewish people to hear because nobody would ever say that about anybody besides God. But they're saying it about Jesus. Thomas is right there in front of him because Jesus is Lord and he is God. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, let's stop and let me, let me give an objection here, okay? There are some progressive Christians, some more liberal Christians that would say when Jesus came to earth, he somehow gave up his divinity, he gave up his deity, he emptied himself of deity, and he was just merely a man, kind of an exalted man, a miracle-working man, but he definitely was not God in the flesh. And where do they get that? How do they mistranslate that? Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Okay, so let's, let's read that real quick. I thought I had it on the screen, but I guess I'm making you turn to it. That's okay. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 7, when, when it says he emptied himself, the more progressive people would say, ah, there's a Bible verse that says Jesus gave up his deity. He emptied himself of deity. He stopped being God when he came to earth. Or maybe he never will. He was God in the first place. What that word probably means, a better way to understand that, not that Jesus emptied himself of anything that was deity, but actually what he did was he gave up his status and his privilege that he had in heaven. He voluntarily gave up the status and privilege he had in heaven to come to earth. So don't think about subtraction. Think about addition. Jesus has always been God. He just added humanity to his deity when he came in the flesh. But he never stopped being God. Okay? Colossians 1, 18 through 19. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, 
And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. And then John 17, 4 through 5, I glorified you on earth. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before with you before the world existed. Okay, so let's just talk real quick. One of the things that the progressive Christians are going to do is they're going to downplay the deity of Christ. We don't really care about that too much. We, we more care about the example that Jesus lived for us so we can follow his example. Yes, Brent. They, before Abraham was, I am. Well, if, if you go back to last week, they don't accept the reality of all the fullness of the Bible. So you can pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to believe. Okay. Now, not only do they have trouble with Jesus being fully divine, what they really have a problem with is the exclusivity of Christ being that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Okay? So let's turn to the famous passage of Scripture. Let's go back to John, John 14. And by the way, I'll address this in a minute but I can address it now and I'll repeat myself. When you say Jesus is the only way of salvation, are you saying that? Or is Jesus saying that about himself? It's both. It's both. But who says it? Jesus. So if you have a problem with Jesus being the only way of salvation, you need to take it up with Jesus because he's the one who said it about himself, okay? So let's, let's read John 14, 1 through 6. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is the night of his betrayal. Just hours later, Judas is going to come betray him with a kiss. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And this is Thomas again. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is not in your notes, but I want to give it to you as just a little bit of extra teaching. When Jesus says, I am, there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. And the way Jesus states that in the original language is, I, myself, I am. Like it's very, very emphatic. If you go back to Exodus 3.15 and 16, when Moses is at the burning bush, and the bush is burning and not being consumed, and Moses God is speaking to Moses out of the bush and says, go, go free my people down in Egypt. And Moses says, I don't know who I'm going to tell him has sent me. Whom, who am I supposed to say sent me? Burning bush? Burning bush sent me? And God says, no. 
I am who I am has sent you. The great I am. So when Jesus uses the I am statements, he's making himself equal with God, Yahweh. And here, he gives three statements. I am the way, the truth, the life. Now, why did he give, all, why did he give three? What's the distinction? Okay, let's talk about the way. Jesus is the way. He doesn't point you in the right direction and say, there's, the, there's, there's kind of the way. He himself is the way. This is the exclusivity of Christ as not one of many good ways, but the one and only way. I'm going to give you some examples here in just a few moments, but one of the things you're going to hear progressive Christians say, and you're going to say, even sometimes evangelicals may say this, a famous televangelist, not really a televangelist, a famous pastor, one of the most famous pastors in America. I will not mention his name, but he has a large church down in Texas, and his name starts with Joel, and his last name starts with Osteen, okay? So there's a, lar- there's a pastor down there. He was on CNN, and then was asked this question, do you believe Jesus is the only way? He could not answer it accurately without wishy-washy kind of getting his way around it. So what people will say is that Jesus is a good way. He's a good way. You can choose it or not choose it, but I'm not going to be so exclusive to say he's the only way. He's a good way. He's the way I figured it out. He's my way, but he doesn't have to be your way. Or Jesus is one of many ways. Okay? Acts 4.12, we talked about this Sunday morning. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, is that pretty clear? There's salvation in nobody else. No one else. Okay, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 13-14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now I don't have time to go into all the teachings on this passage of Scripture, but it's talking about how there's only one way to get in. There's only one gate. Jesus is the gate. There's only one way to get into that. And it it requires repentance. It requires faith. It requires surrendering to Christ. Wide is the way that everybody's already on. It's a path of least resistance. Narrow. Now, the Old Testament often talks about the way. It's It's a really common Old Testament word, the way. It really talks about your lifestyle, the way you live, the way you're going. For example, Psalm 1, 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That word way is used all the time in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 21, 8. And to this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Jesus says, I am the only way. 
No other way. No other entrance. No other gate. I'm the only way. Okay, that's the first thing. He could have just stopped right there. Yes, Jeff. Right. Yeah. 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 And I'm gonna I'm gonna have to repeat your question for the for the live stream because it doesn't come through the microphone. So if you I'm just gonna repeat it for everybody. If you deny that Jesus is the way, then basically you're calling Jesus a liar and saying he's not true to his word. We're gonna well, I'm gonna address that in just a moment when we talk about the objections. But that's a, but but you're thinking ahead, so that's good. All right. Hey, Doug. <laughs> okay. Jesus as the truth. He could have just stopped and said, I'm the way. But he says, I'm the truth. This means he's the embodiment of the full revelation of God. Everything about God's truth, everything related to who God is, what God has done, is embodied in Christ. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I read this earlier, John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 1 John 5, 20. We know that the Son of Man has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and whose Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. What's the opposite of truth? Lies, falsehood, blindness. Okay, so Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the full embodiment of absolute truth. And then he's the life. Means he alone is the only source of eternal life. John 1, 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay. Three things that Jesus says. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Now, why would he use those three things? As I've thought about this, think about the three greatest desires or ambitions or questions that humans have had all through the centuries. Like, if you can boil things down to three major things. Question number one. What is the meaning of life or the way to God? How does Jesus answer that? I am the way. Second question. What is truth? How do I know what I believe is true or if it's false? Jesus answers that and says, I am the truth. And question number three, is there life after death? Is there such a thing as eternal life? And what does Jesus say? I am the life. 
Humans for centuries have grappled with these questions. That's, that's why there's so many philosophy books and other religions that are attempting to answer these questions. What's the meaning of life? How can I have access to God? Is there life after death? What is truth? Those are the, those are the fundamental questions that, that humans have been asking, and they go to all different places to find those answers. And Jesus cuts to the heart of all these issues and tells us that the way, truth, and the life, they're not found by looking inside yourself for answers. They're not in a philosophy or even a belief system. It's not in morality or even trying to be upright and good or following his example or any other type of spirituality. The only answer to these questions are found in him as a divine person, God in the flesh, the great I am, the only way to the Father. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay. The deity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ. Now, what we're going to answer are the two major objections that people give to this. You hear this from culture. You hear this from secularists. You may even hear this from other Christians. Here's, here's objection number one. Does this not sound bigoted? Maybe even hateful? Presumptuous? Pompous or arrogant? Too constrictive, narrow-minded. Who are you to say that there is only one way? I mean, look at all the different paths that people are following. Look at all the different things people are doing. Are you meaning to tell me that a person who's a sincere Buddhist, who's doing really good with their spirituality, or somebody that follows Oprah, or somebody that's a good, upright citizen, that they're doing the best they can to be spiritual? You're, you, you have the, the gall to say that they're wrong and you're right? That, that's, that's hateful. That's bigoted. That's narrow-minded. You can't say that. I didn't say it, okay? You can't say that. And that's my point. Who is saying this about himself? Okay, you're merely repeating what Jesus says about himself. Now, I'm going to talk about freedom of speech and cancel culture for a moment. I'm going to go into this. In the, I'm dividing this series up into three parts, okay? So let me just kind of stop and tell you where we're going. We're looking at the six key fundamental beliefs that are under attack we're on number three. After we get to that, that's part one, we move into part two, where we talk about the agenda, the Marxist, the social Marxist agenda of our culture to try to rid Christianity off the, the map of human existence in America. I'm going to talk about that. And then part three is how do we respond? What do we do? Okay. But I want to introduce a little bit of freedom of speech tonight. Okay. So here's the point. Those of you that are in education, this whole section over here is like, in, in a lot of, we have a lot of teachers here tonight. What's the one of the words that we hear? We need to use inclusive language. Any 
view that's not included needs to be included. Any non-inclusive language is not only intolerant, but it could become unlawful. Here's the point. Right now, it's intolerant. It could very soon become unlawful. Now, what do I mean by non-inclusive language? When you say Jesus is the only way, is that an inclusive language? No. That's exclusive language because what are you saying? Jesus is, is the way excluding all other ways. Well, our culture says, well, you, you can't do that. You can't just say one thing's right and exclude everything. The whole point is everything has equal say. And for you to say one is better than another or one is greater than another or one is truer than another, that excludes those other views. And not only is that intolerant and hateful, but as a matter of fact, that could become criminal. That could be hate speech. So, last time I checked, we are a constitutional republic. Hanging on by threads, okay? <laughs> we have a constitution. Now, here's the thing about the Constitution. I'm not putting the Constitution as an inerrant document that's God-breathed, okay? I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is our worldview about the Bible informs our worldview about the Constitution. What do we believe about the Bible? It had a fixed meaning that the original authors meant. Okay, If you're a strict Constitutionist, you believe that the Constitution meant what it meant, and it doesn't change over time. It's not a living document. What the progressive view says is those old men that wrote that were homophobic, racist, imperialists that didn't know what they were talking about. And so we need to evolve and, and understand what it means today. Okay. So let me just read to you the First Amendment, in case you forgot. You guys ready for the First Amendment? Congress shall make no law respecting, there's, there's two parts to this, respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech. Okay, so let's, let's talk about those three things. If you take this as the original meaning, number one, the establishment of religion. Okay, what does that mean? The state can't come in and say everybody's going to be Anglican, everybody's going to be Episcopalian, everybody's going to be Buddhist, or everybody's going to be Oprah, or everybody's going to be Mormon, or everybody's going to be Baptist. They can't mandate an established religion and mandate it across the board that you have to believe it. That's the establishment clause. The second is the free exercise. The free exercise. They can't prohibit the free exercise. Now here's where it gets a little bit dicey. Here's where things have changed even in the last 10, 15 years. In the older view, okay, let me just, let's do an exercise. Let's do, let's do a, an exercise in, in English with the word exercise. What does the word exercise mean to you? Prohibit the free exercise. Exercise. What does exercise mean? What does that word mean? To practice. To do it outwardly. To, to do it the way you want to do it, right? That's what it means. Older generations said, you are free to exercise your religion. You can go to whatever church you want. You can believe whatever you want. You can talk about your beliefs. You're free to live the, the, the life of religion you want to live out in the public square. No big deal. Every, every, you know, 
You can have your view. I can have my view. We're all going to live together in one happy America. I may not be a Baptist or I may not be a Methodist or I may not be a Hindu or I may not be a Muslim, but we can all practice our religion freely. Practice it. Now the wording has been changed. You can have those opinions, but you better keep them to yourself. You can't practice them out in the public square, and you dare not speak about them in the public square, because when you speak about them, that becomes hateful and bigoted and exclusionary. You can think it, and you can practice it maybe behind the doors of this church, or maybe in your home, but if you go on Facebook and say something, or you go on social media, or you go into a classroom, or you, or you say something at work, you can't exercise your religion in the public square. You've got to keep it to yourself. Because here's what's going to happen. I need to be very careful what I say here. We may be shut down here in a minute, but that's okay. Um, on Facebook is what I'm talking about. Whatever you believe about the insurrection, or whatever you believe about the capital thing, that one event is going to be the one event for the, for the next history in America that people are going to point to as what could be the worst thing that can happen if you believe a certain way. So here's the logic. If you are a conservative Christian, therefore, you're going to lead to insurrection and violence. If you're against gay marriage, you're going to start blowing up gay people, okay? Or you're going to start killing gay people. If you're against abortion, you're going to start blowing up abortion clinics. So it's not like I have this view and I hold to this view and it's been my view forever. It's like, no, you can't hold to that view because that view is going to lead to hatred. That view is going to lead to violence. That view is going to lead to an insurrection and we can't have that happening in our country. So we got to stop it from happening. And how do we stop it? We stop it through your speech and through canceling you on social media platforms. Because if you express your religion, if you practice your religion, it could lead to violence. Because remember, silence is violence. If you don't speak up against injustice, you're, you're a culprit. Remember what happened this summer with all the riots in the streets and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff? If you don't speak up against that, it's, you're, just, you're just complicit in the police brutality if you don't say anything about it. Your silence is violence. So, in the newer, more progressive view of the Constitution, freedom of speech means you can say what we want you to say, and we define what you can say, and if you say something different than what we define, it's hate speech, and we will silence you, or we will shame you, or we may even penalize you with fines, or we may imprison you. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, but that could be coming very near, near near in the future. Okay, so back to Jesus being the only way, okay? That was a little rant on the Constitution of Freedom of Speech. Let me talk to you about a man named Rob Bell. You need to know names. 2011, he came out with a book called Love Wins. Let me give you the story of Rob Bell. He's my age. And in the late 90s, he planted a church in Michigan, an evangelical Bible-believing church. 
And at that time, in the early 2000s, it became the largest growing conservative Bible-believing church in America, like 10 or 12,000 people. He started at 99, and I think by about 2005, it had like 10,000 people. So he got real popular. Um, when I was a youth pastor, he came out with these, um, this was in the, like 2002, 2003-ish. He had these NUMA videos where he was like teaching the Bible through these like little short videos that were kind of creative. And, um, and then things started to change. He started doing some weird things in his church and he lost a lot of people and his elders kind of said, you've got to stop teaching what you're teaching. And eventually, in 2011, he came out with a book called Love Wins. And basically in the book Love Wins, he basically came out and said, I don't believe Jesus is the only way anymore. He's one of many ways. I'm not sure if hell is real. And it, and it wasn't like he came out and said it. Remember what I said a few weeks ago? Asking the questions is more important than finding the answers. He would just ask those questions. I'm not sure if Jesus is the only way. I'm not sure if hell is real. I'm not sure if God has to punish sin. I'm just not sure about that. Let's explore that. Well, basically he explored it, and then in 2013, basically when the book came out, he got fired from his church. They said, you can't be our pastor anymore. Then in 2013, he came out in favor of gay marriage, and now he's on Oprah and does a lot of stuff and um, is basically kind of more of a motivational speaker. Okay. So I, I look at my parallel track with him because he and I are the same age. I started ministry in the late 90s, the same time he did. Bible-believing, conservative, teaching from the Bible, to now denying Jesus is the only way, holding up gay marriage, denying hell, partnering with Oprah and other places. And, and basically, he went to Hollywood and, and is kind of running around with Hollywood producers and things like that. So that's an example of a person in leadership who had a large church and has a large following, who went down the path of denying Jesus being the only way. Let me give you another example. The book, The Shack, or the movie, The Shack. It came out, I think the movie, the book came out in 2008, and they made it into a movie. And it, it's, I read the book. I didn't see the movie. The book was bad enough. But um, Papa... God the Father is, a, is an African-American lady. Jesus is kind of a bumbling guy that likes to cook food and play in his garden. And then the Holy Spirit's an Asian woman that kind of wisps around. And Anyway, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And so, listen, and Max, the main character that goes back to the shack and supposedly, you know, God shows up to him. And this is what Jesus says to him. Um, listen to what Jesus says to the main character, Mac, on page 110, if you want the book. Jesus says, I am the best way any human can relate to Papa, that's the Father, and Sarayu, the Holy Spirit. I am the best way. I'm the best way. Okay, so I know a man who was a seminary professor whose office was right next to William Paul Young when he was writing the shack. And this seminary professor told me that he saw some of the early copies of the shack before it was submitted to the publisher. And he said that the publisher would not accept it because it was so wacky, so out there. 
So he had to tone, down, tone it down before he could legitimize it in a, in a Christian publisher. He has since come out with a new book called Lies We Believe About God. This is not an allegory like the shack. This is where he basically comes out and gives his theology. So the shack is more of an allegory. It's more of kind of a story. You kind of have to read between the lines. Here in his book, the guy that wrote the shack, Lies We Believed About God. And so in chapter 13 of his book, here's the lie that you believed. Okay, you ready for the lie you believed? You have to be saved in order to go to heaven. Okay, that's the lie you believe. Okay, here's his own words. God does not wait for my choice and then save me. God has acted decisively and universally to save for all mankind. Now our daily choice is to either grow and participate in that reality or continue to live in the blindness of our own independence. Are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, universalism is the belief that everybody's eventually going to get saved. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, he's one of many good ways. He's not the only way. And the reason why it's so dangerous is that these men and women have a huge following and people are picking up on that. Now, here's, where, here, here's the slippery slope. I think a true Christian in their heart of hearts knows Jesus is the only way. But there's fear to say it because you don't want to be perceived as judgmental, narrow-minded, bigoted. So you just don't say anything. And then pretty soon, your mind can be changed to, well, you know, I can't deny the Bible, but I, just, I want to believe what the world says. So I'll just kind of change the view from Jesus is the only way to Jesus is a good way. He's, one, he's a good way. He's the way I found, and he's been good for me. But you may be on a different path, and that's okay. But he's, a good, he's the best way. Not the only way, but a good way. Now, C.S. Lewis made an interesting statement in his book, Mere Christianity. This is a long quote. I didn't put it in your, in your thing, so just listen. This gets back to what Jeff was saying earlier. It's the famous, the famous C.S. Lewis quote about Jesus. Remember, Jesus is saying this about himself. So I said, if you have a problem, take it up with Jesus. Okay, here's the C.S. Lewis quote. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifyingly or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So the famous statement from C.S. Lewis is Jesus is either a lunatic 
He's a liar or he's Lord. Either he was crazy and didn't know what he was talking about, or he's lying to us, or he's absolutely Lord and he says what he means and you have to submit to Jesus. Okay, that's objection number one. It's bigoted, it's narrow-minded, it's hateful, it's non-inclusive to say that Jesus is the only way. Okay, this leads to a second question. This gets into a little bit of a little bit of debate, but we we're all adults in the room. We can get into the debate. Here's the second. Here's the second objection. It's not fair for God to send people to hell who've never heard the gospel. So let's let's talk about the logic here. If Jesus is the only way, and there's salvation in no one else, what happens if you've never heard Jesus? What happens if you never had a chance to put your faith in him? What happens if you are in a deep, dark jungles of Africa and you've never heard? What happens to you? There are eight, there are eight okay, predominant views among Christians on how to answer this question. What is the fate or what is the destiny of those who've never heard the gospel? I will give you these and try to explain them the best I can. Number one, this is the, the shack view. Universalism. This is the most liberal and extreme view that states that everyone will go to heaven. Everyone, everywhere, regardless of what they've done with Christ, will be saved. Or to put it another way, you're already saved. You're already in a relationship with Christ. You may not know it. But if you do know it and choose to get out by doing something really bad, then maybe you'll go to hell, but you're already in. It could be. Yeah, that could be, that could be the answer. Okay, so universalism. Number two is pluralism. Pluralism, everyone who obeys their particular religion is saved. For each religion supplies an independent road to ultimate reality. So, for example, if you're a sincere Buddhist, you'll go to heaven for being as good as you can with your religion. <clears throat> if you're a sincere Muslim, you'll go to heaven on how sincere you were. Here's the problem. How do you define being sincere? And what happens if you believe a belief system that's totally antithetical to the Bible? So pluralism says... You'll go to heaven if you're good in your religion. If you're, a faith, if you're a faithful Muslim, you'll go to heaven. If you're not a faithful Muslim, you might not. If you're a faithful Buddhist, if you're a sincere Buddhist, you'll go to heaven by being a sincere Buddhist. Whether you've ever heard of Jesus or not or believed in him, if, you're, if you adhere to your religion faithfully, that will get you in. Okay. The next one is one that's up for debate. I don't believe it, but there's a lot of Christians that do. General revelation inclusivism. Everyone who obeys the general, and I'll explain general revelation here in just a moment. Everyone who obeys the general revelation they have based, they have based on their conscience are saved through Jesus, whether they actually repent and believe in him. So let me give you an example of what general revelation is. General revelation is you look up at heaven and you know there's a God because you see the stars. Or you stand at the edge of the ocean and you look out at the waves and you know there's a higher power. Don't know who Jesus is. 
You don't know anything about sin or the need to repent. You just know that there's a higher power out there that's the creator. And so you can be saved, you can go to heaven based upon that little knowledge that you have that there's a God, whether you know anything about the Bible or Jesus or sin or repentance or any of that type of stuff. So basically, if you look up at the sky and say, wow, that's a big moon up there. I don't know the name of the God that created it, but there must be some God that put the moon up there. I'll worship that moon God. God may reward you with more light so that you can find him, or if you die with that little knowledge of worshiping the moon, you'll go to heaven whether you heard of Jesus or not, because that's one view. Okay, world religion inclusivism. You can respond to God through either general revelation or their specific religion. So this is still through Jesus, even though they're not conscious of it or not, but they can possibly find Jesus through their world religion or through looking up at the stars. After death evangelism. Those who've never heard receive an opportunity to believe in Jesus after death. This is similar to the Roman Catholic view of purgatory. You didn't have a chance here on earth to hear, too bad. After you die, there may be an opportunity to hear it when you're in hell and get out, I guess. Now, the, the next two are ones that I think most, the next two I think we would say are probably the most biblical, okay? And we can, we can question number, number six, but okay, six is special revelation exclusivism. They must hear the gospel and be saved, but in rare cases, God can sovereignly choose to send an elect person special revelation in an extraordinary way, a dream, a vision, a miracle, or an angelic message. So in extremely rare instances, God can do something supernatural to bring the message to that person, but, they have, but once that message comes to them, they know it's Jesus. And they place their faith consciously in Jesus, even though a human messenger never told them about Jesus. Or what you hear a lot of times is, a Muslim has a dream about Jesus, and then a missionary comes and explains that dream, but it's still through Jesus. They consciously know who Jesus is. Okay. Number seven is the one that I think is the most biblical. This is exclusivism. God does not provide salvation to those who fail to hear of Jesus and come to faith in him before they die. All those who die without a conscious personal relationship with Jesus and Christ alone will go to hell. And then number eight is the view, I think, of John Stott and maybe J.I. Packer, agnosticism. We cannot know. The Bible is silent, so don't speculate. <laughs> we can't answer that question because the Bible doesn't answer it. Okay. So which view is biblical? Which view is biblical? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. And by the way, if you want to know what's going on in the world today, go to Romans chapter 1, 18 through the end of the chapter, and it'll explain a lot of things. Okay, We're just going to look at a few things here. Okay, Everybody there at Romans 1, 18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
<coughs> excuse me, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they didn't for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal gods for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me give you five observations about this passage of Scripture. We're not going to go into a lot of depth, but let me just kind of give you some observations here. Number one, God has made himself plainly known to all humans through the witness of creation. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Okay. Number two, instead of worshiping the true God for who he is, Sinners suppress that truth. Verse 16, they, they suppress the truth. They push that truth down. They don't want to see the truth. Okay. So when you press something down and suppress it, think about a beach ball that you play in the pool. Like what happens if you push it down and sometimes what does it do? Pew! Pops back up. If you push something down, something's going to pop up in its place. So if you push the truth of God down, if you push the worship of God down, what's going to come up in its place? Well, this is what Paul says. Sinners become idolaters by exchanging the glory of God for created things. You push down God's truth, what's going to come up in its place is idolatry. You're going to begin to worship created things. And then he says, all humans are without excuse. Natural revelation or creation and conscience are not enough to save a person, but through these are given just enough knowledge of God to damn them to hell. Now, this doesn't sound very politically correct, okay? And you may struggle with this. So here's the question, and you may disagree with me, and that's okay. I'm going, to word this, I'm going to word this, and then I'm going to answer it. What happens to the innocent man in Africa who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will he go to heaven? What's wrong with that, the way I worded that question? Innocent. Is there an innocent man in Africa? <laughs> Is there any innocent grown person? I'm not talking about babies or mentally incapable people. I'm talking about those that have a conscience. Is there any innocent person on the face of the earth that has never sinned? Okay, so let me ask you a question. What? Could be a person that's never sinned? Right, right. Oh, yeah, there's people who have never heard Christ. but Oh, yeah, there's millions but who have never sinned, though. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. So let me ask you a question. You may disagree with me, and that's fine. You can come and talk to me afterwards. What sends you to hell, rejecting Jesus or your sin? Or both. Okay. okay, here's the point. If you go to hell because you've never heard Jesus... What's the worst thing we can do in missions? Go to people who've never heard, tell them about Jesus. Now they're accountable and they reject him. Now they're going to hell. They weren't going to hell before you came. But once you came to them and the missionary, it, 
task and share with them Jesus, now they're accountable and now they're going to hell because they reject it. Okay. It's a both and. Do you go to hell for rejecting Jesus? Yes. But let's back it up a step. Why do you reject Jesus? Because you're a sinner. Okay, so here's the question. What happens to those who never had a chance to reject Jesus? Do they still have sin? Does that sin make them accountable before God? Okay. John 3, 17 through 19. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned already. I think the NIV says stands condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, we can sit here all day and argue about the, the person who's never heard. But what can we control? Telling people, okay? So people have to hear. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a good debate, but like what, what about the person in the deep, dark jungle of Africa that's never heard? Well, that's a great debate, but what about the person across the street that you can go to and tell? They need to hear just as much as the person in the deep, dark jungles of Africa. So don't, don't make that an excuse to say, well, you know, have these, these theological debates that you don't go to the person that needs to hear. So the importance of hearing and believing. Romans 10, 13-15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You kind of have to work backwards in that text. So you have to be sent. Then you preach. And what happens? A person has to hear and once they hear what do they do they call upon the name of the lord and then they are saved okay so we have to tell people about jesus before they die what's this idea about having a second chance after death hebrews 9 27 through 28 just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. It's appointed for man to die once and then face the judgment. There, there is no, the Bible does not know anything about a second chance after death. Once you die, that's, that's final. So people need to hear the gospel of Jesus before they die. So what is faith? Okay, so what historically... When you look at faith in the Bible, the word faith, trust, there's three aspects of it. Okay. First is knowledge. This is where your mind has to understand the facts of the gospel. I know who Jesus is. I know he's the only way. I know I'm a sinner. I know he died on the cross. I know he rose again. This believes your mind. I believe the facts of the gospel. I understand the facts. Now, let me ask you a question. Can someone understand the facts of the gospel and still not be saved? 
Yeah, demons believe there's one God and shudder. You can go out on the street today at Pioneer Park, or you can go into Walmart, or you can go downtown, or you can go to NJC, or go to someplace and ask people, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? And what will they say? Yes. Does that mean that they've done the next couple of things we're talking about? That you can have mental assent that Christ existed in your mind. I know the facts. Now, you have to have those facts to know why you need Jesus, okay? But secondly, you have to have what's called assent or approval. Okay, this is where the heart has a settled confidence and affirmation that Christ can save me personally. I agree with the gospel and Jesus. I assent to or I approve what it is for me personally. This involves the heart. So it's, it's moved from, I got the facts, I know Jesus died, I know he rose again. Okay, that's just great trivia for me to understand. It, it moves to, wow, that means that I need Jesus. I need to have my sins forgiven. He died personally on the cross so that I could be saved. I'm starting to understand that in my heart. But then there's the last thing trust. This is the personal commitment of our lives to Christ by repenting of our sins and trusting fully in Him. This involves our wills. Okay. I've given this illustration before, but I'll give it again. The bungee jumping illustration. Okay, how many of you have been bungee jumping? It's crazy. How many of you want to go bungee jumping? One part, a couple of people, like, oh, okay. okay, some of you. Okay, so let's say you're on the, on the edge of a cliff, you're edge of the, the edge of the bridge or whatever, okay. And so you're about ready to go bungee jumping. And the guy comes and gives you the harness. And this harness is nice. It's got great carabiners and great buckles and great belts. And it looks, so you try the, you try the harness on. And you're like, you got the harness on, you tried it. I think, I think that harness is going to be able to be a good thing for me. So you put the harness on. And then he takes and he, he clips the bungee to your harness. Okay, I, I believe in this. I believe in this harness. I, be, I believe the facts. It's, it's leather. It's, it's canvas. It's got some carabiners. This is a great, this is a great, uh, a great, a great harness. And, and that, that bungee cord, yeah, it looks pretty good. And you stand there all day on the edge of the cliff. Okay, when do you actually put your trust in the bungee cord in the harness? When you jump. Okay, when you jump, what are you doing? I'm trusting everything I've got that that bungee cord's not going to give a devastating date with gravity and make me splatter on the ground. I'm trusting in it. Okay? So you have to actually place all of your trust in the bungee cord and the harness to do what it's supposed to do. Snap you back like a rubber band and make sure you don't crack your head. Okay, same thing with Jesus. You can say, you know what? I believe Jesus existed. I believe he was a good teacher. I believe he died on the cross and rose again. I believe that. Well, you can sit there all day and believe that, but it's not until you actually fully trust him with your life, you give him your life, you, 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 you surrender your life to him, that you're not actually fully placing your faith in him. Because you're still just believing in your mind. You're not giving your entire life to him. And so trust involves, we have to believe it in our minds, the truth, we have to understand it in our heart, but we also have to take that step with our will to actually give ourselves to Christ, to trust in him. And so Jesus says, 
no one comes to the Father except through me. So, if that's true, and people have to hear, what does that mean we have to do? We have to share that message. And what comes as a result of sharing that message? People say, wait a minute. That's too offensive. That's too bigoted. That's too narrow-minded. Who gives you the right to say that? And if you keep hearing that enough, what's your temptation going to be? Well, I'm just going to be silent. I'll be silent. I won't say anything. Or number two, I'll begin to shift my viewpoint and say, well, maybe Jesus is a good way. He's the way I found. Maybe not good for you. You can do your thing. I do my thing. He's a good way. Or you begin to say, Jesus is one of many ways. You pick and choose which one it is because after all. Now, my missionary friend one time, we were having a conversation in a van in South Asia. We have a lot of great conversations one time. And he said, you know, Sean, all paths lead to God. And I said, what? It's like, yeah, all paths lead to God. I said, have you been in South Asia too long around all these Hindus that it's, it's rubbing off on you? What do you mean all paths lead to God? He says, let me tell it to you this way. No matter what path you're on, whatever path the mountain you're on to get to the top, eventually everybody's going to meet God. You're either going to meet him as your judge or you're going to meet him as your savior. But all paths eventually end up before God. I don't mean all Jesus is not the only way. I don't mean that all religions are equal. I'm just saying that every single person is going to meet God at the end. And so will you meet him as your savior because you've trusted in Christ or will you meet him as your judge but all paths lead to God eventually on the final judgment question is, are you on the path through Christ? Oh, that makes more sense now. I thought you were a heretic there for a minute. <laughs> and so we had our conversation. All right. So we've got about 10 minutes left for questions, comments, or snide remarks. So yes, Jeff, and I'll repeat your question for the, for the Facebook, YouTube audience. What happened to him? Like, where is he now? How did he get to where he was? Yeah, I don't know until... Okay, I have a little insight into how... Yeah, how did, how did Rob Bell get to where he was in the late 90s? Okay, so I have some insight into this because I read about it. In the early 2000s, 2004-ish, 5-ish, 7-ish, there was this movement called contemplative prayer where you kind of did some mystical prayer-type things and some, some weird type of praying where you're supposed to kind of like open your mind to different types of things. And somebody, some elders at the church wrote some articles that said he kind of started getting into that. And they said that his actual personality changed after he started doing that prayer. So something, something through that prayer either got him on a journey to get away from the scriptures or opened up a demonic I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know all the details. All I know is it's a cautionary tale, Jeff, of how easy it is for a Bible-believing pastor that believes God's Word to go off the rails. Is he still saved? I would probably say no. If you deny, yeah, I would probably say he was never saved in the first place. Yeah, not that he lost his salvation. 
He just was never fully saved. Now, that does not mean, let me hear me loud and clear, that does not mean there's hope for Rob Bell to repent. If God, if, if he truly, if God grips him by grace and he repents and he renounces that and he comes back to Christ, then there's, I always hold out hope for somebody because you don't want to ever write off somebody. What you have to look at is say, man, I mean, that's, that's a sad thing. Um, there's another guy, this is more about atheism. You guys ever heard of Josh Harris? Uh, Josh Harris was a young pastor that wrote a lot of books. He, he wrote I Kissed Aiding Goodbye, those books back in the late 90s. Um, he was a young up-and-coming pastor. Um, he had a mega church. He spoke at a lot of conferences I went to. I even have some of his books, solid guy. Um, he started kind of exploring. He went off to seminary, to more of a progressive seminary. And um, he has now come out in favor of gay marriage and says basically he's an atheist now. He doesn't believe there's God. And I used to listen to his sermons. So it can happen. Yes, Cindy. Wolf in, sheep, in sheep's clothing. Yeah. 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 There's a lot. There's what's that distance between your head and your heart? They call it twelve inches. Twelve inches or whatever. Yeah. There's a lot of people that that have the mental. They can cite a creed or a confession or give the theological answer or even preach a sermon. Um, I will tell you a story about my former pastor. My former pastor was a pastor, but he wasn't saved. And it came time for the invitation at the end of the service where people normally come up to get saved back in the old days. And he stopped and said, I've been living a lie all this time. I'm not truly saved. And he asked one of his deacons to come over and pray with him. And he said, I, I have to repent. I, I've been kind of faking it. I'm not really saved. And I have to ask your forgiveness. I've pastored this church for a few years without even being saved. And that's when he got saved at the end of his sermon. So you can be a pastor and preach without being saved. Yes, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 Part part of it part of it's on the church's mandate to go in obedience to the Great Commission that we're not going to the people groups that need to hear. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the chain got broken somewhere. God's going to get it done. Yep. Any other questions? Oh, yeah. We're, we are forgetting the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and what do you mean by that? Yeah. 
Well, if you read my book, Your Identity in the Trinity, I talk about all three. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. The, the issue tonight was not necessarily to deny the Holy Spirit or not talk about Him. It was more to talk about Jesus. But yes, we would not be saved without the Holy Spirit. Um, we would not have an awareness of sin. We would not have conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit, we would not be born again without the Holy Spirit. We would not be able to witness, share the gospel without the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, yes, Father, Son, and Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity are crucial in our, in our salvation. So, yes, the, the Holy Spirit's absolutely essential. Okay, next week we're going to talk about the substitutionary atonement, how progressive Christians downplay the need for Jesus to die in our place. They call it cosmic child abuse, that God would punish his son, and they deny hell. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about next week. So... You guys good to go? I got 7.59. 30 seconds. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. We are uh, thankful, Jesus, that you are the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the, to, you, to the Father but through you, through you, Jesus. And so we're thankful for that. Holy Spirit, we're also thankful that you open our eyes to these truths, that you bring us conviction of sin, that you come and live inside of us and give us the power to be able to live the Christian life. And, and Lord, we do need to share this message to the world. Uh, and so, Holy Spirit, help us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, or if the ends of the earth means across the street, or to the person that we work with, or our coworker, or a family member, Lord, give us the strength uh, to be able to share this message. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.